Hey there, welcome to Your Basket is Empty, a space where I sit down with interesting people doing cool stuff in e-com and tech. I'm your host, Tim. So I've decided to create a new series called Agency Side, Stories of Leaders Changing the Digital Landscape. It's a six-part weekly series where I sit down with agency owners and leaders to explore what it's like to build, grow, and navigate an agency through the complexities of a modern digital world. On this episode, I sit down with Kelly Brown, COO and CFO of The Working Party, a Shopify Plus agency based in Melbourne, Australia. We touch on managing a business when your business partner is also your life partner, the e-com and Shopify scene down under, the fluidity of culture and what she'd be doing if she wasn't running an agency. Before we get into it, quick word from my sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Clavio, Clavio, the ultimate e-commerce marketing platform for email and SMS messaging. Whether you're launching your e-commerce business or taking your brand to the next level, Clavio gives you the tools to get growing faster. That's why it's trusted by over 30,000 e-commerce brands. Build your contact list, send emails that pop, and create marketing moments that build valuable customer relationships over any distance. Get started for free today. Visit clavio.com slash your basket is empty to create your free account. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash your basket is empty. Enjoy the episode. Kelly, welcome to the podcast. How are you and where in the world are you? Thanks, Tim. Uh, it's great to be here. I'm in Melbourne and we're about to be celebrating regaining some of our freedoms post-lockdown. So it's a it's a good, happy day. There you go. Yeah, a joyous occasion. Um, and th- that, that means, as we were just discussing, you can leave your house and go, go and see other people. So you're still restricted, but... Uh, a little bit more freedom than what you've been experiencing of late. Yeah, uh, I think absolutely everybody in Melbourne is looking forward to catching up with friends and seeing people face to face. Good, good. Well, well, we'll get back to that subject in a little bit, but we're also going to try and avoid the whole COVID elephant in the room. So we're here to talk about the working party. Tell me all about it. How did it start and where are you guys at? Great. So the working party is a Shopify Plus e-commerce agency. We do all the usual technical stuff that you would expect, development, integrations, and so on, but we also have a very strong design practice and a growth program that builds revenue through owned assets. So focusing on performance, conversion, technical SEO, email, and so on. A little bit of background about us would be that we started playing around with Shopify as far back as 2006. And we're appointed in the first round of Shopify experts when that program launched and Shopify Plus partners in the first international group of 38 in 2016. Wow. Okay. So you've been around and and, and in the Shopify ecosystem for, for quite a long time. We definitely have. I mean, I feel like, you know, we sort of, we built the first Australian um, plus store for triangle swimwear and that was followed quickly by Honey Burdett and Kukai. And last year, we replatformed multi-billion dollar electronics retailer JB Hi-Fi to Shopify Plus, which is still widely recognized as one of the most complex builds on the platform to date. So we definitely have been around from the start and almost seen it all the way through to the current um, sort of market traction that it has. Yeah. Okay. We'll get on to sort of the Shopify scene in Australia for a bit, but I'm, I'm keen to explore the, the working party in a little bit more detail. So what, in terms of the team, like what, what does your team look like? I mean, you've been around for, for, for quite some time, like how has it grown? Um, you know, who have you got on board at the moment? What does it look like now um, compared to maybe what it looked like in, in 2006? 
very different. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, wow, 2006 just took me back quite some way. Um, look, it looks very different now. I mean, we we now work for the sole purpose of two main things. One is to re replatform custom design projects onto Shopify Plus. And the other one is our growth program where we help brands to um, increase their revenue on Shopify Plus. But what that means for our team mix is that all of those skills are really required for both of those, um, both of those projects. So they're not working in a really siloed way. All of the projects were required technical design and development, management, execution, strategy, um, UI and UX design. So we have a really blended team now that work very cohesively within each sort of goal project. And and uh, how so? How has it changed from the beginning? Was it was it you guys just doing it yourselves, and then you've branched out, or was it um, you decided yeah, look, to take on the kind of like the growth bit as a, as a secondary uh, phase to the to the agency? You know, as you as you grew. The growth part definitely was a secondary phase as we had sort of, I guess, grown and built up like a, a good chunk of experience and um, a good chunk of having the projects that we'd worked on a good amount of knowledge from that. In the beginning, it did start out that it was just us and we sort of hired people, but we also did a slightly different thing before we just did Shopify stuff, if that makes sense. So we we sort of run a team that was design systems and design transformation projects. And then beside that, we run a team of Shopify experts building Shopify sites to the point where it was almost like which one won out and the Shopify stuff won out from both a passion point of view from Cal and I. We enjoyed doing that kind of work more. Um, and also just the momentum of it, like the timing when we started to really focus on Shopify, it was probably probably about 2014. And that's when things were really starting to take off. So you noticed it back then, the kind of the, it, do you think you noticed it because you were in the space? Because it feels like in the, I mean, in London at least, like, I mean, there's Shopify uh, billboards and, you know, stuff at, uh, at bus stops now, but there certainly wasn't that in, in 2014 so do you feel that that swell was something you noticed because you were in the space and could kind of foresee it and did you foresee that it was going to get this big I don't I, I couldn't say that in the beginning we foresaw that it was going to get this big because we spent a lot of time in the early days really explaining to people what Shopify was especially in yep. Australia yep <laughs> where, like, um, yeah, I'm sure you, you can empathize with that I mean there was a lot of explaining it. There was a lot of doing events around it. There was a lot of marketing Shopify here before they had any boots on the ground in Australia. Mm. So we really, we really championed that um, the platform in conjunction with what we could do with it at the same time until it sort of built some momentum. And then obviously Shopify put boots on the ground out here and it grew and grew and grew. And we could feel, I think, at that time, because we did have some direct communications to head office, we knew that it was going to be an important thing in the industry. Mm. I couldn't have um, probably predicted exactly where we would be at now, but we definitely, I mean, we must have fully believed in it enough to be a single platform e-commerce business. We don't develop on any other platform. And I think from the beginning, Cal felt that he could guarantee the kind of customer experience that he wanted brands to have and the kind of you know the the services that we wanted to give them and how much growth we wanted to work with them to deliver 
with Shopify more than any other platform than we had seen previously. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. So, I mean, you, you've, you've referred to Cal a couple of times and you're not the first person I've interviewed that is working with a, with a, with a life partner. Um, so I'm keen to understand, like, how does it work? How did you assume the roles that you've got? You know, what, what's, the, what's the best thing about working with someone um, that close to you and, and what's probably some of the, the, the more challenging bits? Um, it's a really good question. Um, <laughs> I think probably not a, a super well-known fact is that Cal and I have known each other for a really long time. We met at uni. Um, so we didn't instantly assume the roles of business partners and even life partners. And those two things sort of, I guess, grew and developed over time. And by the time we were serious about running a business together, we had already sort of established, um, established in a way, I think, what we were good at, but at the same time, knowing that we were very similar personalities and similar in the way that we operated. So I think that the best thing for us is having a single focus. I think that we're both very energetic and very motivated people who, when they're applying their single focus to one thing, it works very well. But I think probably on the downside of that is we do struggle, I think, still to switch off and to not talk work a lot and have you i mean i i assume that that has become heightened over the last while but how, how do you how do you um how do you manage that do you do you have to set like times where you go like right between <laughs> 7 p.m and 10 p.m you, you you know we're not allowed to mention work and, and if you do you have to put money in the work jar or something like that I don't think either of us are big respecters of rules. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I don't think having that kind of structure would work. Um, I think that we just, it is what it is. It, the life that we've chosen means that we are fully doing this. There's not another thing or many other things to focus on or talk about often, not ever, but often. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I suppose that leads kind of nicely into, into my next question. And it's something I've been asking in most people, um, about the culture and the value of the, the organization that they've created. And I've found yours, uh, particularly quite clear on what your values are. And, and it feels quite clear, certainly from, you know, a, a, an outward facing perspective, what you expect both for people working with you and for you. And I suppose like I'm keen to understand, like how has this helped in defining your culture? And then do you agree with that old adage that culture eats strategy for breakfast? Um, I think, I think when you start a business, you don't, you're not an expert at everything. Like I'm, you know, super happy to admit that we're not experts at every single thing in business, but also we've been in business long enough now to, to learn some things. And I think when we initially went through a really rapid stage of growth, um, we definitely, and I, I think a lot of founders would probably um, echo this, we went through a lot of hiring the wrong people and a lot of mistakes around that HR process. And we just over time realised what, what things we felt really connected to and what things we liked other people to bring into our business. And I think that culture, as much as as a founder, you want to dictate it or control it, it is somewhat fluid. 
all the time. You can't just lock down culture today and say tomorrow, well, this is still our culture and this is still our culture, particularly if you don't hire people that, you know, you need to hire people who resonate with that culture. But as you hire and grow and change your team, um, they influence it or they challenge it or they enhance it and sometimes they detract from it. So I feel that these days we really try very hard to protect the culture that we have now built over time. It's taken a while. Um, and I wouldn't say the culture eats strategy for breakfast. I think you probably have to have a good measure of both, but I don't think that you can really build a business that, um, I don't know, is unique and will make a difference if you don't have any culture within it or a good culture. Yeah. I think it's, um, if, if you, if you, I mean, it will exist anyway. It's like this kind of ephemeral mm. blob that sits in the in the organization, right? And it's either the, the, a, a culture will be there all the time. And I suppose it's whether you acknowledge it and try and harness it and then think about it, right? Acknowledge it, that it exists and what is the sort of thing that we want it to be. But yeah, I think that, that, that that's interesting that the um, it was like a... Uh, a progression you know it was like a, a process and, and we've gone through a very similar thing it was like the defining of the culture was kind of done by necessity because w things were not working and it was like hang on we're hiring the wrong people well why is that you keep going back you know kind of a root cause analysis and you're like okay well what what sort of people are we hiring what do they value what is their you know what are they bringing what are we bringing to them and oh okay right yeah that's that's what culture is there's so a if, mismatch if, yeah yeah and and you can it's only mismatch if you haven't defined it right because if, if mm. you don't know what your own culture is how can you uh, say to somebody or, or interview for the same types of of, of, of um, attributes, you know, you need to sort of sit there and define it. But yeah, I think that that's an interesting point that the, it, it evolves, it, it moves, it kind of, it's fluid. And, you know, I suppose particularly right now, right, all cultures in the world have changed. We've gone from a very, very traditional environment of whatever, you know, office and people coming in and, and now it's not or hybrids or whatever. So yeah, I think it's, it's, it's going to be a continuing conversation. I think that's an interesting point though, because I think that we, having learned those lessons about not so much controlling the culture, but influencing it <clears throat> heavily, we knew that when things changed around the period of the work from home with COVID, that we had to take charge of that. Like we had to control that situation. We couldn't just let the culture that we had built move and, you know, sort of become its own thing again. So we definitely were very proactive around how we transitioned our team into work from home and how we managed that mm. to retain the culture that we had built. Yeah. I feel a good analogy for culture is like making bread or something. It's like a sourdough and you like let the thing, you can let it sit there and like you feed it and the the, the culture, like the bread culture can just sit there and go and, and, and then you can create bread or Sometimes you might need to go and like shape it up a bit and, <laughs> you know, form it Feed into it, something that you want. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Throw it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Destroy it. Um, so I suppose culture, talent, you know, people, it's, it's, it's all this kind of like, you know, very, very incredibly important uh, element to any business, but particularly an agency environment. And, and we talked previously about sort of, the talent within Australia and, and particularly tech talent and there being, I suppose, generally because of the population of the entire country, it being limited, but also, and I suppose 
more uh, interestingly, there's a, f- a small amount of tech companies that potentially sort of swallow up some of that talent. So the Atlassians of the world and Canva, et cetera. So w- what's been your experience with this? And, and I suppose, what do you think are some potential solutions to, to um, uh, the issue that might be, might be there? Well, I definitely feel like we operate in a competitive market for talent. I mean, we're a small country with a small talent pool and a few, I mean, this is probably true in other places, but here there definitely are a few companies that suck up a lot of tech talent. Um, I think though that probably working with Shopify from such an early stage has taught us that we need to train people and we're very happy to do that. And I think, um, going over what we just spoke about with the the progression of culture, we now have a hiring process where we're looking for, you know, obviously skills. And then we're looking then for that mix of values and also for the kind of person who wants to keep learning and can be uncomfortable in their role with technology changing and wanting to adopt new practices and new ways of working. I, I would just say to that, that I think it's so we've really discovered that it's so worth it to make, the time and effort in the hiring process to find the right people and then to really invest in those people. Um, Because I think that small businesses like ours do have a unique personality about them and embracing that can be a really, can be a superpower rather than, you know, just sort of trying to replicate like another tech delivery agency Mm. in in market. Mm. What, what, what is it when someone comes in for an interview or you meet someone for a potential job? What, what, what is it that jumps out at you that, that says, oh, yeah, I, I want to hire that person? Or, or is it like, you know, you, you need the time to, to sort of to get to know them? Is, you know, have you got instances where someone has been like, yes, this is it, this is the person? Or, or is it not as um, uh, romantic as an idea as that? I think we, we probably do a lot of the things that are in the HR playbook these days. So, you know, we have, whenever we're interviewing people, it's not just me interviewing them. They would have their peers and their coworkers interviewing them as well. And I find that really helpful. Like I find having a panel of people and different opinions. Yep. Um, I, we definitely use questions like, there is obviously like a technical component to it, but then the things that we were just talking about, like culture, how do you test a person for that? Well, you have to ask them how they respond in certain situations or and to tap into sort of practical answers. Because I think in the past where we probably would have let things through to the keeper with an answer that was theoretical, if we keep asking the same question, like how did you work collaboratively? And they, they give a theoretical answer rather than, oh, well, I've done it like this, 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 and this, and this has worked and this hasn't. You sort of start digging into into the detail and into the the depths of how they actually operate by talking Mm. about situations and by talking about how they've reacted to things rather than just or you know where they've learned something or where they've taught somebody else something rather than just focusing on skills and the kind of companies that they've worked for previously Mm, yeah i mean because yeah i get it right a lot of that stuff is it's on the piece of paper right like you can see Mm. where they've worked and particularly if they're notable organizations you'll assume that if they've been there for, you know, more than a couple of months, if it's only been a couple of months that a lot of organizations is probably something you want to explore there, but they, they, you know, someone else has vetted them. So you're like, okay, yep. You're obviously, you know, competent at something. So let's dig into the real world situations and see how you handle this thing. Yeah. And I, I also think that, you know, where we have had the most successful hiring, where we have 
you know, had that skill base and then we've, you know, been very comfortable into the digging into the questions and getting the answers. I do really feel like for us, that's become part of the journey. The second part of the journey is onboarding that person successfully mm. and integrating them into the team successfully. So, you know, once you've found that person, like it's very, it is very true. It's a bit like dating in a way you want to romanticize finding that perfect person. But then once you onboard them, there's a lot of work that has to go into making sure that they're happy, you're happy, they have what they need, the team understands why they're here and what they're here to do. And we often, we, I mean, we have a lot of set roles these days, but we also um, quite frequently onboard completely new roles into the business mm. and then mobilize those roles. So it's not even like what they're doing exists to begin with. And yeah, I always find that a, a, a challenge, right? And I, I always find, right, like um, always on our job descriptions, there's a clear, there's a big thing that says like, you must be, you know, the, the classic stuff of like, you must be proactive and you must be, uh, you know, entrepreneurial and, and, and okay with being, you know, out of your comfort zone and okay with change. And I always find, you know, you, you focus on those questions in an interview and there's, there seems to be particularly people that come from big companies and they're coming into the smaller sort of more entrepreneurial quote unquote environments. And they're like, I love mm. the idea of wearing loads of hats. And I love the idea of being challenged <laughs> every day. And then I've seen those exact people in the everyday and things, the shit has hit the fan. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> we talked about this in the interview. You said you love this. Like, here it is. This is it. <laughs> and like, they, I, I think, they loved it in theory. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I think that that's, I, I reckon it's a really interesting bit when you're, when you're hiring, because I find that I like to really push on those sorts of things and like drill right down and just like keep going and not in an, an antagonistic way, but in a realistic way of like, okay, you give me the answer there, then this happens. And all I'm doing is reeling off like <laughs> actually what happened, you know, yesterday, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, this is what's going on. I, I you know, and, and I, and I find that it's, it's so tough, right? I think you've, you've, you've touched on a really good point because someone could be incredible at the interview bit. And then if they get into the organization and then the onboarding bit is not, maybe as good or, or you've got holes in that, then, you, you know, like it is difficult. You're, you're kind of, you're, you're setting someone up not to be maybe as successful as they can be. And I suppose maybe to some degree, that's where you see the real proactive people and, you know, they could just come in and with no set job spec or anything, they just kind of get straight mm. into it. But that that's quite rare, right? Uh, I think it's rare, but I think the best, it's almost worth going through the mistakes to find the people that are so great. I think that that's the best way or that's, you know, that's the way that we have found it to work. You definitely need, because when you're interviewing somebody as well, there's no guarantee for them or for you that it is going to be the right fit. And I think small agency life is very different to big agency life. I mean, mm. we have had some misfires of hiring from the larger agencies here as well, thinking that those people would bring a level of, you know, competence and perhaps like a broader view but actually we find that in those larger agencies you're part of a, a cog in a wheel and there's not a lot of sort of light shone specifically on what you're doing or you know like it just in a small agency I don't know if it's like this for your team but there's nowhere to hide in what they're producing or um, you know concepting and if you don't know something, you have to ask and take responsibility for it. You can't leave it to somebody else. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I find, I find and you need to be comfortable with that. 
Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I find a, a couple of good sort of um, things I've picked up along the way is in the interview process for anyone coming from a big company asking the question, <laughs> okay, your computer has died. What do you do? And a lot of them will say like, well, I, you know, I call up IT. I'm like, there, there is no IT. <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> and they're like, well, I do. I'm like, no, that doesn't exist. You know what I mean? Oh, okay. So you have to, fix, you know, you basically have to go and fix your own computer. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's, you know, go away. And then also, you know, like, uh, particularly I've found with kind of the, um, the more junior people that we've hired and kind of bringing them up and, and training them up, like the concept where everyone is unavailable. What do you do? Oh, well, I contact, no, 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 they're, they're not, they're, they can't help you. You know, what, what, what would you do? And because I find that the, the answers in there, you know, like particularly if, mm. if you're hiring the sorts of people that you want, which are, you know, hardworking, ambitious, proactive, intelligent people, like it's all in their heads. They just need that, you know, uh, I suppose, opportunity to show and then, you know, the confidence piece to sort of like step up and, and you know, take on that, 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 that thing that whatever they're doing. Um, but I think that sort of goes back to the onboarding part because, I think a lesson that I learned somewhere in that trajectory of building culture and misfires and everything else that goes on as you're growing a business is people won't be confident to take initiative and to um, answer those questions when there is nobody to pick up the phone if you don't support them. So if they do go out on a limb and do something that is their best, you know, their best answer or their best solution and it's wrong, then what do you do? because if if you don't support them through it they'll never do it again yes yeah yeah and then i mean this is a we could spend hours talking about uh culture performance people yeah what was really interesting is i remember in uni like doing a i, I did like a, a like a economics or finance and then i did engineering for a little bit so i took all these kind of weird classes and i remember doing one on like organizational structure and i was bored out of my brain i was like i'm never <laughs> ever going to use this shit and it's just like i just did not like it and i literally this is all i do now Literally, it's all I do. So I feel that we 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 could separate this out on on a tangent and do a um you know people and culture podcast. But I want to I want to bring it back to sort of um more more about the 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 agency and 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 I'm keen to explore. You've kind of given us a little insight into the kind of Shopify scene in Australia, but I'm keen to get your your report because from from this side of the world and everything that I see, there's been remarkable growth. What's it been like on the ground? You know, over the time that you've been involved um remarkable growth i think is a really good way to describe it um like i said to you i mean i I feel like the good part of things is that we're much less explaining what shopify is these days because that went on for a number of years um and we're much more able to explain what the working party is and what we do which is really nice um i think there were definitely days when we were very much a wild card in the pitch process as the Shopify contender. Um, And that's no longer the case. Shopify now has a seat at the table almost all of the time, if not all of the time. Um, I think in terms of what has it been like on the ground? I mean, one of the things that we did quite early on as a business was run a lot of events. You guys, uh, I think do a similar thing. So we did the Shopify Meetup Melbourne. Then we did a series of e-commerce growth masterclasses, including a couple in Bali. And then we did some retailer lunches in Melbourne to really continue um, promoting Shopify and I guess connecting the Shopify name to the working party as well. Yeah, nice. And I suppose over that time, you've touched on a few of the, the projects you've done, but what, what has been some of the most memorable 
projects? I would have to say that absolutely the JB Hi-Fi project <clears throat> was one of the most memorable. I don't often work on client work, but I did work very closely across that project because it was such a, a big one for us as, a, as an agency. Um, I mean, also looking back to when we built Cook Eyes' first ever e-commerce store on Shopify Plus six years ago, and we've worked with them ever since, is a highlight because it's such a long-term relationship where there's been so much success for them as a business. Um, I mean, we really love working with brands where we can have an impact and collaborate to build success. So um, yeah, there's a lot of highlights over the years, I guess, but they're two that seem to really stand out. Mm, yeah, I, I, when when I heard that about the the JB Hi-Fi project and your 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 involvement, I, I was blown away. I don't think the it resonated as much for a lot of other people in the Shopify world, particularly over over this side. But I mean, it is massive, like huge. I I couldn't believe it. Like I I, I was blown away. Um, and it, it, weirdly, you know, it brought me back to my childhood in the Maya Center in Adelaide, going down to JB Hi-Fi and like looking at CDs that I couldn't afford um yeah <laughs> everybody yeah. has that connection to the yeah brand, you know? yeah it's really a household name totally. it's absolutely a household name brand that all you know people of our age but you know teenagers still going to jb hi-fi to look at records they can't afford yeah 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 no i th i think that's amazing so i i'm keen to sort of switch gears slightly and talk more about um like the agency and your um um presence from an outside perspective and, and yours is, is certainly one of the, the nicest e-commerce particularly shopify agency websites i've seen probably the best i think it's fantastic oh. your design no it is it's so nice and and I, I wonder like how important do you think that is and why i feel that there is a is a common element across agencies that that takes a back seat sometimes the kind of outward facing piece and is it the common oh well client work takes priority so they you know it kind of gets put by the wayside i think it definitely can i mean i think client work sometimes can um or often does to be fair put your own work to the side i mean the the website project was such a good one like such a fun awesome thing to produce and um interestingly we sort of started it pre-covid and then put it on a pause because of a lot of the covid stuff that was happening and then we had like a little window to do all of the shooting and all of the styling and stuff like that and all of the video that we decided to include in that in that um, project as well and we were so lucky to get it launched when we did and also it had taken uh, we, we didn't really have a great website ever before this one. So we're very, we're very excited. It's a big deal for us to have sort of gotten that across the line. Um, yeah, it can be difficult, but I, I like it. I think we're going to do more of it. Yeah. I, I think it's something that I reckon um, we fall into the trap and my eyes have been opened a little bit over the last sort of year and a bit that, at its core, what we do, we're a B2B company, right? Service B2B mm. company, you know? And and I think there's loads of literature out there on, on how successful B2B companies run. And one key bit that they seem to miss quite often from some of the sort of the more traditional literature I've read is the brand piece and you mm. being a brand and, 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 and how you look at it then. Because I feel that when you start looking at a B2B company as a brand, 
it kind of totally shifts your view and 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 it, it, it in some ways it's liberating in some ways it's a little bit more challenging because then you're thinking okay well now we're more you know we're more in line with what a direct consumer sort of company should be doing you know it's outward facing we're a brand what do people think about it you know is there a tone of voice but i feel that yeah that that sort of piece is something you guys have done really really well and i think that if 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 agencies can kind of look at it that way that can really help define what it is that they are doing and what the world sees um and and i think that it also gets like their teams really excited right because the majority of them have got you know some design talent in-house and they like working on that Mm. sort of stuff and being seen as a brand and i think um although they have had some uh um negative press recently so i don't want to dwell on that but the 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 vendor in the in the e-com space, Klarna, I think have done a great job of that. They're, they're probably one of the best B2B brand um, positions I've seen in a while. Like they're totally, they're, they're everywhere here. Like they're on billboards, like everyone knows who, well, they may not know what Klarna is, but they know who Klarna are, which I think is a very good uh, case study in, in B2B branding. Yeah, I mean... I think because of the background that Cal and I had prior to the agency, we only ever thought about it as a brand. Like we were never just a B2B service provider. We never operated like that. So everything we sort of did from the very beginning from, you know, building the logo and doing events and talking about ourselves and the way that we sort of built it around that was like we were a brand. And I mean, I think one of the key things to that website build is that it wasn't us directing it. It was the entire team building it and, you know, being involved in that process. So it wasn't just coming from us as the founders or as the, you know, managers of the business anymore. The team built that, that that's what they think of our brand. Mm, Yeah. That's cool. And I think that that's interesting because it, it feeds back into some of the other stuff that we were talking about before about culture and like the team kind of having ownership of, of certain parts mm. of the business in certain but they, ways. They are in a way brand custodians. They're your best brand custodians because they are the ones who, you know, feel it and live it every day and want to contribute to it. I want to switch gears a little bit and sort of start to bring it towards a close. Um if you weren't uh, running the working party with Cal, what would you be doing? I found it really hard to answer this, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot. Go from for it! Get, yeah, yeah, say, do it, do it. So we we all laugh about this crazy moment that I took to study interior design during my third pregnancy when we just moved into state and we were juggling the business between Sydney and Melbourne. And I really love that. I was great at it. I think I'd have a go at that. Interior design. Well, I mean, it feels there's a lot of similarities, right? I think like architecture, design, you know, that sort of thing and building websites, particularly e-com store, you know, there's a lot of synergy. Mm. In fact, I use the the analogy of, of architecture and building a house quite regularly because I feel that it's a, it's an easy one for people to grapple when you're thinking about how we do what we do so okay i see that i think that that yeah i mean easy transition (laughs) (laughs) great second career yeah done all right there you go um (laughs) so um i suppose following on from that theme like what's the best thing about running the agency and what's the most challenging 
Um, look, I think probably the best thing is for Cal and I, and I guess our team by extension, we're natural problem solvers and we love the process of finding the best solution and working in an agency. I mean, you would know this, the problems each and every day are many and varied. Correct. <laughs> and if you like that, if you like to lean into that and look for those solutions and sharpen up the solutions and look for patterns, you know, Cal and me to an extent, but he loves efficiency. So finding better solutions faster mm. is a bit of a mission for him. Um, I think like I would definitely say the most challenging, particularly in the early days um, would be the uncertainty. So I really feel like for a long time, I wanna say for our entire relationship, Cal has been the person out front pushing us forward despite the risk, just going, no, we're doing this, we're going to keep going. <laughs> and then I come along and pave the path after with the most risk-free approach to get it done. <laughs> and that's how we've come, how, how we've become more okay with, you know, what a sort of uncertain and risky undertaking starting a digital agency is. I uh, w- Would you agree though? I, I would argue that that is a great match then because you've got the two Mm. kind of sides of the brain or the two, you know, you've got, they're working in unison. I I would argue that if you were both one or the other, then you would either be not as risk-taking and maybe not be as innovative or you'd be too (laughs) too (laughs) risk-taking. We probably wouldn't be talking right now. So yeah, Yeah. I think that that's a, that, that, would you agree? It it sounds like that's a good match. I I think it is a good match. I think, Part, part of the success of the business is, is that forward thinking and forward looking and risk taking type behavior. And then me looking at it pragmatically and making a plan that is sound and solid and isn't gonna drive us off a cliff or you know end up in a disaster. <laughs> I think that's a, yeah, I think that's a classic and, and, and of it. And well, what, what are we talking about? Yeah. 2006, this is clearly a successful formula. So I, 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 I think it's a, yeah, embrace it. And I think that's great. I think people can learn a lot from that. I'm keen to draw it sort of towards the close. I got a couple of final questions. So first off, um, AFL or NRL <laughs> and in, in which case, who do you barrack for? Uh, have you met Cal? He's a very tall man. So we have, I don't know if you know, we have three sons. They're all very tall. So we're a family of basketballing people. So we oh, sorry. My apologies. Than... I should have added that in. That, that, you know what? When I wrote this else? question, I was going to go like, <laughs> hang on. I probably should. This is like really, really just like base level question. I should have you know, yeah, extrapolated that out <laughs> to all of the codes in, in Australia. Look, okay. So basketball. He does. It, but like for me, it's basketball and watching, you know, their school or sport games or what whatnot. Um, Carl might take the boys to the odd Collingwood game every now and again, but I wouldn't say they were <clears throat> either diehard fans of AFL or NRL. Sadly, sorry. Right, to okay, so so you weren't whipped up into the the the, the Tigers hysteria that has has uh, sweeped the the state in the last few days. Mm-hmm. No hysteria. To be honest, there's a funny story about that because we have a team member who was very into Geelong Cats, friends Ooh. in Geelong Cats. So I thought, oh, well, and the, our family was split. So we had half the family barracking for Tigers, half the family barracking for Cats, but it was quite a late game. So we decided to turn it off halfway through and they could watch it the rest the next day. 
So everyone went to bed thinking the cats won, <laughs> which, which was good because that was my team. And then I woke <laughs> up in the morning and I was like, oh. <laughs> it was crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. Um, right. Well, the final question then. And, uh, you know, like what, what, what's next for you guys? Appreciate we're, we're in, a, in a very uncertain and very strange weird world at the moment but you know as far as you can extrapolate out what, what what's next for the working party look i think it, it weird is a good an interesting word for 2020 it has been a very weird year um i guess we can only sort of speak to our experience in melbourne like it's it's definitely thrown a bunch of challenges this our way this year I think that we've just settled into a, a nice kind of new working rhythm with people working from home and looking how we'll sort of grow the team into next year. Um, we've got a couple of projects that are about to kick off that are in a slightly different area than we would normally kind of touch on maybe. But I think mostly we're just going to um, to do more of the same. Like I sort of see that Next year may be a big replatforming year for brands who've had their e-commerce stress tested or a big year for brands who are looking for a competitive edge to, to really succeed. So I think whatever happens, it's going to be a very busy year. I agree. And I wish you all the best. And I know we'll be speaking very soon. Kelly, thank you so much for joining me. That was fantastic. Thanks for having me, Tim. There you have it. A massive thank you to Kelly for being on the show. Please go and check out The Working Party at theworkingparty.com.au. And while you're there, I would highly recommend reading the JB Hi-Fi case study. It's an amazing project. Before I go, a quick word from my sponsor, Klaviyo, the ultimate e-commerce marketing platform for email and SMS messaging. If you want to learn more, go visit them at klaviyo.com slash your basket is empty. And if you like the series and the podcast, like it, subscribe it, download it, and tell your mom to tell all her Facebook friends to do the same. I'll see you next time.